is All the Genders, a podcast where we talk about gender identity and queerness with marvelous people sharing their lived experience. If you're a trans or non-binary person, close to someone who is, exploring your gender, an ally, or even if you're here because you just found out that male seahorses are the ones who carry the babies and you are wondering what this world is coming to, this podcast is for you because gender identity is everybody's business. And I'm glad you're here. You can hear new episodes every other Monday through your favorite podcast source or online at allthegenders.com. I'm Quinn, she, her, or they, them. I'm non-binary and bi-gender. Today I'm male, other days I'm female. I'm like a box of chocolates. Today's guest is playwright, actor, producer, musical director, and transgender advocate, Avery Jean Brennan, she, her, or they, them. Hi, Avery Jean. Hi, Quinn, how's it going? It's going pretty wonderfully, I have to say. Apart from, as we discussed earlier, the disturbingly pleasant weather we are having at this point in November. I wanted to start out by asking kind of just about your personal, your sort of gender story, like how you came to embody the gender that you have today and how that was for you. Yeah, oh my gosh. Um, I was just talking about this the other day with someone and I kind of like referred to my own self-expression as gender as like I, as a gender extremist. Go on. Yeah, no, that's it. That, you all have to figure it out. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, so for myself, I now identify in full. Um, I would refer to myself as a pan-gender trans-feminine person. And to me, that means a lot of things and nothing all at the same time. Um, I love to be, and this kind of reflects in my art as well, I find. like I love to embrace the simultaneity of the world, especially when they are at like, complete contrasts and opposites of each other at the same time. Um, so I think of my gender as being all genders and no genders all, all at the same time, like the alpha and the omega <laughs> gender. <laughs> and then I use the term trans femme because I also know from my own expression, like my outward expression, treating that very differently from my inward identity. Um, I do prefer to live in a more feminized space. I prefer to be like, if I, if, if, if someone on the street is going to misgender me, I would, I would rather it be she. I would rather it be as a woman. <laughs> right. That right. one to me, like, it's like, you're wrong, but it's not hurtfully wrong, at least. Um, and that all kind of started for me. I, I'm one of those people who, like, as soon as I learn what a term is, it's been very quick and easy for me a lot of the time to go, oh, yeah, that's me, obviously. Like, I remember being, like, 11 or 12 and... I was with my mom watching Will and Grace or something. And I was like, what are these people? Who? Are, what's going on? Why are these men talking like this? And she was like, oh, well, they're gay men. And I was like, what does that mean? And she would tell me and I'd be like, oh, well, that's probably, yeah. Okay, I get it. <laughs> um, having a very limited understanding of gender yet. So I spent several years thinking I was a gay man, of course, as I'm sure right. any of us have. <laughs> uh, everyone makes mistakes. Um, and why, but through that, like even in my teens of doing theater, I was always still more gravitated towards the women roles in theater. Um, I remember doing like a teen training program where I was one of the only like quote unquote boys in the entire group. And the show we were doing was Hairspray. And the director of the program was like, so you'd be a really great link. And I was like, in no world is that true. Mm. <laughs> like 14. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm going to play the mom. And she was like, I have two boys in this camp. And I was like, 
I know, and I'm going to play the mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I did, and uh, it was around. I'm still kind of piecing together a little bit of like the exact like awakening moment of the gender for me, but I feel like I was in theater school in post secondary around the time when Orange Is the New Black was coming out, and I was seeing mm-hmm. the on my TV and being like, "What? What is happening? Who is this person? Why? Why do I have all these feelings?" And I had already been in theater school. I had done one conservatory program already. It was just like one year during most of which it was my teachers telling me that I needed to be a straight man, passable straight man on stage. And that was the only acting training I got. <laughs> that's, not, that's not totally true, but a lot of the focus was on that. And I had a, a lot, lot of people get that advice for life too. And, just well, yeah. pretend you're a straight male. <laughs> Uh, well, I had a shred of the confidence and sense of self-worth. Um, but I, ha- I had a lot of that pressure on the computer school, and I always felt awful about it. And I used to think it was mainly just because, like, oh, I'm clearly not going to be a good actor if I can't do this thing. I'm feeling terrible about it. But it, the feelings always ran a little bit deeper than that. And then in my first year of theater school at another program, after that, I was 19. I remember that. Yeah, that's when I saw Never Cox for the first time. Um and I was in these super school classes. I was doing the glass menagerie for the third time in my life. For the third <laughs> time playing Jim the Gentleman Caller. And you're like, I hate this. But not really understanding the scope of why. And I was seeing Levert. And I don't think it 100% clicked for me then. But like it started, the, the, the wheels started to turn. And then my second year, another year later, I was doing... Um, the Grapes of Wrath as a play for my year. And our director on our first day of that show said, that, okay, all the boys, boys, in your clothes, um, you need to stop shaving for the rest of this starting today. And you can't shave until closing because of the oh. wrath and Great Depression and everyone, no one has access to razors. I don't know. Um, and that to me, that was kind of the first like major dysphoria moment that I can really remember. Mm. Like, so just, like freaking the hell out of that. And then, um, oh, can I swear? Is that allowed? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, freaking the fuck out about that. <laughs> the whole exchange. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, I went to like ballet the next morning and I was really good friends with my bar mate at ballet and I was mm-hmm. really not okay. And she was like, What's going on? And I, all that I said to her was, I thought it was being so smooth, but also like so clear what was happening. I was, I said to her, I just thought that I had already finished coming out. Mm. You just, and she just kind of went mm, and nodded, and we didn't talk about it since. And then I kind of stayed in the closet for another six years after that, actually, because I was like, I want to work in musical theater, and at the time, I was seeing nothing of the sort on Broadway or anywhere else in Canadian theater where trans women especially were visibly on stage. Mm. And then especially, I have, a, I have a really big background in music that started when I was eight too. And so knowing that like voice types really matter in a certain way in musical theater, or I used to think that they mattered in a different way that I do now. We'll, we'll get to that later. But <laughs> okay, good. Um, and uh, so I stayed closeted for about six years and I worked professionally as an actor for all of them, playing men. Um, at least there were always like the effeminate gay men. But so like, luckily my teachers were wrong. And, like I wouldn't need to ever, I never played a straight man, which was great. Oh, but I wow. still spent years doing these like 
I did spam a lot and like the Christian Borel track was playing like the, the really, really effeminate gay prince and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I saw, so six years later, oh yeah, that was when season nine of Repulsor Red Grace was on the air and getting to watch Peppermint on that program and hearing about her as a singer. And that, that was my first introduction to her um, as an artist and really seeing what, even like what she looked like at the time of shooting that season, because she was very early on in her um, public transitioning and kind of, I guess like I also always had that kind of internalized transphobic thought of like, oh, well, I can't be a trans feminine person or trans woman because they all look like this and so much more beautiful than I am. Like I can't do like, you know, I look, I have short hair and my body's like this, like it's not really going to be a thing. And then seeing her at that stage of her transition on TV and knowing she was a singer, knowing she was a theater queen too, and being like, oh, (laughs) I I don't think I could really run away from this anymore. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Because I hated all six years I spent in the closet, of course. Um, Yeah. So it was around that I realized like there's no more hiding this. And I just moved to Toronto um, to pursue writing musical theater. I kind of started to transition into that. And I was already writing a musical where the main character was a trans feminine person. Um, And then kind of in my mind a little bit, I'm sure subconsciously at the time being like, and I'll write this and then I'll play that role and then everything will be fine and and I'll have jobs. And I actually never played the role. Um, Someone else did when I was pretty But either way, like that was kind of the moment of like, all right, I have to do this and I'm going all in, I'm coming out. I lived a few years as a trans woman at first. Um, And then it was during the beginning of the pandemic when I spent all this time alone um, and realizing like, oh, I don't have to like posture for anybody about what my gender expression or identity actually is because I'm not leaving my house. And I I used to say I don't have to posture for cis people, but I'm also realizing too that even trans people, like there's anyone, like we all have a lot of internalized stuff about assumptions to work through. So yeah, spending that much time alone sucked in many, many ways. Um, but in other ways, it got more comfortable with my body. It got me more comfortable with like my own identity and like the possibilities that were behind it. And so that's kind of when I started to use they, them and she, her pronouns and just kind of just live my life over the fuck I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my very short journey through gender. It's uh, a, a short but of eventful journey. Was there um, much anxiety during the times when you were uh, closeted? And did that change very much when you came out? Um, I'd say yes and no. Like, I've always, like, I live with anxiety disorder, just like in general, as many mm. of you. Um, do you mean like anxiety around like people perceiving me? Like, what, like around? Um, I know that my experiences tended to be before I do another coming out step. Mm-hmm. Anything that I always thought I would never do. There's a lot of fear and a lot of imagined situations, and then I do it. And for me, the experience has usually been, oh, this is fine. Everybody's fine. If people are having problems, they're keeping them to themselves very politely. Um, I, and I know not everybody has that experience. Oh, I'm curious if emotionally. Yeah, I had definitely a mixture of that, I'd say. Because, like, the, not the only reason, but the main reason I stayed positive for so long was 
thinking like, okay, if I come out this career that I've been building, cause I also started as a child actor and like it was already by then almost 10 years working professionally in the industry. And I was only 24. Um, so I was like, okay, well coming out means throwing away everything I've been building for the last 10 years. Mm. And in a way it kind of did at first, I will say, mm. um, it showed me a lot about like who my real friends are. Um, but that also showed me too, like coming out, like the people who like become your friends because they want to feel good about being nice to a trans person. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I had to learn how to navigate those relationships. That one took me about like a good two or three years to be able to sort out the like, oh, you don't care about me. You just care about the, the points you're getting for being nice to me. Um, but in terms of my career, a hundred percent, everything changed. I would say. Um, it coincided with me moving across the country because at the time I was living in British Columbia, the west coast of Canada, and I moved to Toronto, which is quite a lot further away for mm. those listening who are not as aware of the map of my country. Uh, <laughs> you mean Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and I, there, I know not all Americans, hashtag. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so, like, uh, like inherently, like, I was going through a major career shift at the same time. Mm. But I was going from, like, working all the time, auditioning, for everything and moving to Toronto. And I know like some of it was also like, who is this new person in the city? But also I was coming in with a pretty stacked resume of acting credits. Yeah. And a really strong resume of even directing and music directing credits that I'd already started at the time. And I couldn't get seen anywhere. And when I was seen, actually it kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about like being able to discern people who are like actively interested in you as a person or as an artist in this case, or are they like, Oh, I'm the, uh, you called me in as a, like, oh, a trans person submitted. And then I'm in and you're not actually taking my work seriously. You're not actually mm. going through the things needed to actually make an audition space, especially for musical theater, accessible for a trans person. You're not thinking about the needs of my specific voice. You're not thinking, like, it's just very evident um, experiences, which are still happening to this day, honestly, when I meet new people sometimes who artists who play with my work um and then very quickly they um get over that <laughs> because they have um yeah no i had a lot of anxiety around that and i a lot of it did come true for me unfortunately but it really forced me to have to kind of reinvent not just my identity as a in terms of someone who's in relation to gender but also my career like i leaned really heavily into my writing i leaned really heavily into my producing so I was thinking like, all right, there's no roles for me in musical theater because people still have these really archaic ideas of mm. how to treat voices and voices and keys in musical theater. I'm going to write my own. And I've written, I've written four musicals now. I'm working on, a, on my, yeah, I'm working on, I'm working on my third and fourth still development right now, but uh, mm. in several other plays, all of which have roles for trans people. Um, most of which have been produced so far too. And Hilariously enough, I'm always writing a role for myself. I've never professionally played a role I've written. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Why is that, do you think? <laughs> I think it's a matter of like, I don't think this is true of all writers, but I think it's really hard to write in a, like an objectionably flawed protagonist if you're also like writing with yourself in mind for that character. Mm. You kind of like, even subconsciously, no matter how much therapy you go to, I think you can kind of ignore a lot of your own flaws. 
Or you get confronted with them, you're like, I don't want to spend a three month writing period talking about how shitty I am. That's not. Mm. <laughs> so I kind of, I have to, I end up having to distance myself. And then, especially in workshop settings, it's so much more helpful for me, at least as a writer, if I can just you know, watch someone else go through it and see right. if they can pull from the text. Because ultimately, yes, I write these shows and I have characters in mind for myself in them. But ultimately, I'm like, well, there's barely any trans characters in the canon of theater or especially in musical theater. So even if I'm writing a show that is with myself in mind as an actor, I want this to be published. I want other people to be able to do it. I want other theaters to be able to program it without me being around. So part of that for me really means that doing the thorough work of in workshopping, having another actor come in and be like, what can you mine out of the text? Because I'm inside my own brain. I know what I meant to write every time, mm -hmm. but also my interpretation is still only ever going to be kind of like a very base level. I know where it comes from. I know all the details, but I already put all of myself into the writing. So there's not a lot of new stuff coming out from me acting it either. So I get to see other people like very recently, actually just two weeks ago, I was doing a workshop of a play I'm writing called No Country for They Thems. Hmm. Uh, and absolutely had a, one of the two characters in it was a, a thousand percent originally based on myself. And I cast someone in the workshop who, we have a lot of things in common, um, but also the way that we express and interact with the world is sometimes quite different. Um, and I brought them in and hired them and the choices they made were so dynamic and explosive in a way that I just never would have done myself because I, again, like I knew that world inside out, but it also means I'm really rigidly attached to this one view of what that character is, his interactions. Hmm. And I, I absolutely adored everything that they did. And it's just kind of, Another reminder, like, yeah, I'm probably still, I'm not probably not going to play that role either. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, though, seeing, I mean, always the process of writing something and then someone else brings it to life. And there are all these things that are suddenly in the part that didn't, that you never contemplated. Oh, God, exactly. Mm -hmm. But I think especially in writing trans characters, like, Every single person on this world, whether you're cis or trans, I really think, has a completely different perception of what masculinity and femininity are, mm. or even androgyny. And we all, without really realizing it, assert them on the people around us. And that's also true in our writing of our characters. So like for me, I write my perception of this character's perception of their own gender, which is already a whole other layer of layers. Um, and then at least for myself and my writing, I like to be as specific as I can while also leaving room for <laughs> new specificities. Hmm. I said earlier, I love contradicting myself. That's, that's part of my... That's part but of my, you don't? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so also, like, everyone else's perception, like, what is their relationship to transfemininity? What is their relationship to transmasculinity and, or masculinity in a transfeminine body or world? And just, like... Getting to watch all of these different ideas melt together is kind of become my favorite thing as I've been writing. I've been writing a lot more lately and just loving seeing what people come in with their own thoughts and ideas on these things and knowing like, oh, none of us are wrong. That's what's fun here. Right. And that's what's making it explode. Well, you wrote this musical that in 2018 was at the Toronto uh, French Festival, the Pansy Craze. Mm -hmm. uh, can you... Tell us a little 
bit about where that came from and what it's about and what it was like seeing it to come to life? Oh my gosh, absolutely. So The Pansy Craze is the musical I was talking about earlier that I said I was writing when I moved to Toronto and saw Peppermint on TV. And uh, The Pansy Craze is a story of a transgender woman in the early 1930s, so like the twilight years of prohibition in the United States. I'm a Canadian theater writer. I wrote a show that takes place in New York. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I thought all shows took place in New York did, or Los did. Angeles. Okay. I mean, if you, if you ask anyone on Broadway, yeah, then yes. <laughs> um, it's that or Italy. Um, and so the Pansy Craze is about a transgender woman named Jeannie Wilson um, who was trying to make it on the vaudeville circuit towards the twilight years of prohibition. And in our history, in, in the queer history of the world, which is as we all know, exceptionally well documented and taught in every school. Um, every, every high school class has a whole year on queer history throughout the millennia that we've been around. Um, now, this very lost history moment of... Uh, so there were these upper end nightclubs in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles towards like the late 20s, early 30s, where it was like, these are like the rich, rich, powerful people um, having these underground speakeasies. And they were all about the, uh, they, they always wanted like artistically the next big, like very like out there liberal thing at this time in our history. Like they were so like, whatever the most like taboo thing is, that's what we want in here. And that's what we want to celebrate. We want to know these people want to love these people. Um, so openly queer performers and people who at the time were thought of as female impersonators um, or male impersonators um, really just very clever, but also very smutty queer <laughs> shit. getting so celebrated. And like these acts were all illegal what they were doing on stage, but so were the speakeasies. Like they were literally, alcohol was prohibited still at the time. Um, but then when Prohibition ended in 1930, ooh, 1932, I haven't worked on this show in a while. I don't know the dates as well as I used to. <laughs> right. Um, no one fact well, It would be different English versus metric anyway. Yeah, exactly. And using the metric system of, of the year. <laughs> it was 1930s in Canadian years. It was 1932 um, in Celsius. And uh, we... What, what happened when Prohibition ended was these establishments then became legalized and they became more public facing. However, the acts on stage were still prohibited and illegal. And a lot of these performers, um, uh. like uh, Ray Bourbon and Gene Mellon, were completely cast aside, thrown out, had the cops called on them by people who ran these clubs, um, were arrested and murdered or committed suicide as a result of all of this. And so I wrote a show, not, not, I didn't, not like to, as a history of that, but more just like set in that period in a fictional nightclub with fictionalized characters inspired by what happens. I was like, I don't want to try and recreate this history. I want to have another history in here. Um, right. And more of like not try and tell the world what happened there. Because also like it's a lot of stuff that's really poorly documented. I didn't want to try to pretend to be a major expert on the subject. Um, so I created my own character, which is Jeannie, um, lightly based on Jean Mallon and Ray Bourbon put together. Um, and 
she's kind of like perceived to be a, a female impersonator, though she's actually a transgender woman. She's actually very vocal about it throughout the entire show. And anyone tries to call her that, she's like, no, I'm, you're wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm an actual woman and you're an idiot. And kind of her tenacity through getting to that space and falling in love for the first time with someone who actually sees her as who she is. Um, and it doesn't end super well. <laughs> mm. But I, I have a mandate with my shows and my writing. of I like to say everything that I do is about and for community. And so for me, I'm not going to write something that harms the community. Like, yes, we know. Right. We can be very easily assume that it was not a good time for her <laughs> at that time in her life. So yes. I don't focus on that as much. And like, I kept in a lot of it. Absolutely. Like things like hate crimes that happened to her throughout the show. Um, and the way that the sensationalization and kind of like fake relationships she had with people mm-hmm. based on her um, how she was treated those are all still there but I really try to focus on like the hope like what can we learn as a community from what happened to her um, and to these other people what can we how can we find in ourselves like not watching her get completely defeated like how does we how do we watch her find strength and how do we learn to find strength in ourselves mm-hmm. um, and then that, I started that in 2016. I had a playwriting mentor named Christopher Weddle back in Victoria, who we used to be one of my acting teachers in theater school. And one of the good ones, one of the good ones. Um, and uh, we worked on it together as my, he was my dramaturg and kind of writing mentor for about two years on that project. And then shortly after I went to Toronto, I'd already had a few readings of it. And for the longest time I was like, it's just a play. I could never write a musical. Every single person at every single reading and workshop was like, so this is, you're making this a musical, right? I was, there are literally all the songs in it. She was a fucking singer. <laughs> she was a singer and dancing. She was a singing and dancing people of her singer. There were, it was, was going to be a musical. And so then I moved to Toronto and I took a writing class with a Canadian musical theater legend, Leslie Arden, who was a student of Stephen Sondheim's. Um, for, uh, I actually don't know how long, I was going to say many, many years, but I don't know if that's true. Enough, enough time for her to have had a relationship with him for real though. Um, and studying musical theater writing under her for about a year and then met, um, a producer who had his own kind of indie theater company in Toronto who was really interested in the script and he had a fringe slot already, but the show he initially had, had fallen apart for whatever reason. I don't actually know why, but. I don't mind. It worked out for me. Yeah. Um, so he took my script. Uh, he was in that class with, with me, actually, under Leslie. And uh, put it up in the fringe with no budget. And no one knew who the hell any of us were. <laughs> and so, as you know, as any friend, it's like your initial sales really come from the name you already have coming into the space. And at the time, there was another show. There was a lot of musicals in the fringe in Toronto that year. Um, some of them by like pretty big Canadian musical theater writers like Kevin Wong. And um, I, I, I know I just said that they're big names and I can't remember one of them. <laughs> one of the writers from the Drowsy Chaperone had a musical as well in the French. And it was a musical about drag queens even. So I was like, oh, not, wow. not that I think that drag queens and trans women are anywhere. Right. But a lot of a lot of the French audience in Toronto in 2018 sure did. Right. Um, and so like everyone was going to see that show and then I didn't see that show so I won't say anything about it but I know their ticket sales dropped off significantly after the first few shows oh. and ours picked up quite a bit after our first few shows mm. <laughs> um, which 
I hope that they all had a good time on theirs and I'm sure they were doing something great. And we were also doing something great though. So I'm really thankful for that. We had a huge turnout for our last few shows and a lot of attention. And then that is kind of what got me scooped up by, um, we have a company in Toronto called the Musical Stage Company. They are Canada's leading um, professional musical theater development company. So they are like, <laughs> if you're writing a musical and you're anywhere near the, the greater Toronto area, you want to get attached to Musical Stage Company because they have all these resources and connections and these different workshop programs. So they took me in for a year as well. And I studied musical theater writing even more seriously under that following that show. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my first musical I wrote. And Jeannie actually was a big part of, because I, I started it before I even transitioned. And um, Avery Jean, of course, is not my birth name. And the Jean part of that name actually comes from that show because Jeannie uh, for the longest time was my kind of safe private space to explore my own relationship to womanhood and, and to my transness for many many years um and then as that became more and more public I was like oh that actually means a lot to me um mm. so I included that as part of my name and where did the Avery come from oh um the Avery came from I don't want to describe this the Avery came from an uncle of mine who I never actually met. He had died long before I was born. And uh, he was a painter back in the, uh, I want to say 1950s. And good friends with my grandmother and my grandfather on my mother's side. And he actually committed suicide mm. in the 1950s because someone found out that he was queer mm. and we had to blackmail him. And so I use that name as well, like as a way to like honor him in some ways and then Jean is a way to honor myself and yeah. that's that's pretty wonderful to kind of keep his memory alive like that absolutely yeah his name was Avery Shaw if anyone wants to look up some paintings online he's very good I have none of his paintings ironically <laughs> but they're out there somewhere they're out there they're out there yeah We'll continue our discussion with Avery Jean Brennan in two weeks in our next episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Our music is by the amazingly life-sized Don and Jen. We post new episodes every other Monday, and you can find us online at allthegenders.com and on Instagram at allthegenderspodcast.com.